0: I'm Aaron Reynolds, and you're listening to Explain Like I'm Five on the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interact. Speed is key for Canadian shoppers. Is your business keeping up? It can with Interact Flash. It's the platform that millions of Canadians use to check out quickly and securely. Learn more at interact.ca. I like to think that I'm an intelligent guy, but I know more about Dwayne the Rock Johnson than I do about Lester B. Pearson, and that's kind of a problem. So that's why I'm inviting really intelligent people to explain things to me like I'm five. Sometimes I think about what I take for granted in my life. Things that I feel like have always existed because they happen somewhere outside the range of my conscious memory, even if it was just barely outside. I was listening to some of the debate around socialized medicine in the United States, and I realized that I don't know what Canada looked like before we had what we have now. I don't know how we got what we have now. And I thought about it some more, and I realized I don't even know how our system works. That bugged me. So I took a trip to Women's College Hospital in Toronto to talk to Dr. Danielle Martin. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Danielle Martin, family physician and vice president at Women's College Hospital and also author of Better Now, Six Big Ideas to Improve Healthcare for All Canadians. Uh, thank you so much uh, for, for spending this time with me. Today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I have a lot of questions about how healthcare works in Canada, and I was really thinking about it in the context of uh, my oldest son was at hockey practice and he fell awkwardly and broke his leg Mm. and yeah, (laughs) he's out until at least the playoffs. So it's a little bit of a heartbreaker for him. Um, He went to the hospital, had x-rays done, had a cast, has gone for multiple follow-ups where they made sure things were still okay. Um, This week they took off part of the cast and he's starting to put, you know, weight on his, his uh, leg again. And through that entire process, we never we never paid anything. We never got out a credit card or a debit card. You know, we had uh, his health card, and that was it. And so, I was trying to think of how that whole process functions because there were so many moving parts to it. and um, And so, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. I also want to talk to you about how we got to a place where where we can do that, where my, my son can break his leg and just everything is taken care of and we just don't, we don't worry about it. Um, where should we start?
1: Well, interestingly, I think we should start with the story of a leg. There okay. was a young boy by the name of Tommy Douglas growing up on the uh, the prairie plains of Canada who had a very serious infection in the bone of his leg called osteomyelitis. And his parents faced the kind of choice that none of us should ever face, uh, which was the possibility that they would have to uh, lose their farm or lose their son. Right. And uh, it was only because a physician took pity on young Tommy and agreed to treat him pro bono, free of charge, on the condition that he would be a teaching case for trainees. Um, that Douglas, uh, in the end, did not uh, have a, an, an amputation, and so that really shaped his perspective, and he grew up believing that no parent should ever have to choose between their child's leg mm. and their, you know, mortgage or their, you know, financial well-being, and uh, and so when he later became premier of Saskatchewan in the uh, late forties and early fifties, he established first uh, hospital insurance. And in order to ensure that anyone who was admitted to the hospital in the province of Saskatchewan uh, wouldn't have to pay anything out of pocket. And then later on, medical insurance. So he brought doctors into the fold uh, in the early 1960s. And that uh, Saskatchewan model became the model. Uh, that was implemented subsequently across Canada with support from the federal government, and so you know it's uh, it's sort of fitting that we begin with these story yeah. the story of two legs, if you will, <laughs> Tommy's and your sons, to say that um, these things are very real. You know, they they have an effect on real families and real people, and this notion that. Uh, um, that, you know, you probably take for granted that, that if, if your child, as I do, if your child gets sick, that you're, you'll have lots to worry about. Uh, but one thing you won't have to worry about are the, are the hospital bills and the medical bills. Of course, we know that south of the border, that's not right. the case and that yep. people, uh, that medical expenses are the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States of America today. So, um, we really uh we shouldn't take it for granted because there was a lot of uh, a lot of fight that went into the establishment of uh hospital and medical insurance in canada and and many um fights still to come if we're going to expand these programs to include what really a modern health care system should look like
0: right um because so it started it, in Saskatchewan. Yeah. And it expanded out to other provinces, and then the federal government became involved?
1: The federal government became involved to and uh, and essentially said, you know, we'll cost share these programs okay. in order to make it uh, doable for for provinces and territories to have these single-payer public insurance plans. And so that's what we have across the country. We talk often, you know, it's, it's often said that we don't truly have a Canadian health care system. We have 13... Uh, provincial and territorial right. healthcare systems that are united by a set of uh, national principles. I do think that's a bit of an overstatement because I actually think there are many things about our, um, the way that we think about healthcare in Canada that do imply a national, um, not just a national set of rules, but a national uh, commitment. That, okay. we, that we make that, that's linked to our notions of citizenship and what it means to be Canadian. And uh, the federal government plays a really important role, continues to share the cost of these programs across the country. And, uh, in, of course, in the early 1980s, established the famous Canada Health Act piece of legislation that lays out uh, what provinces have to do, provinces and territories have to do with their insurance plans in order to get those federal
0: Okay. those so federal contributions. In terms of like what services they have to offer?
1: Yeah, or? so there are five principles, universality, mm-hmm. accessibility, comprehensiveness, portability, public administration. So essentially what the federal government says to the provinces and territories is uh, we will kick in money to help pay for your single payer plans, but you have to have a single payer plan. It has to be public. You cannot permit user charges for those services that are covered. It has to cover everybody who qualifies uh, for being covered, and we'll talk about who that is. Absolutely. And um, you know, a variety of other um of, of other criteria. But you know, fundamentally what the government of Canada is saying is we want to make sure that the federal dollars that go into the provinces and territories to um, support health care services. Are being used in systems where the fundamental principle is that access to healthcare should be based on need, not ability to pay. Right. So, a patient comes to see I'm a family physician. Patient comes to see me in my office. You know, I examine them. I might, you know, uh, give them some recommendations on how to self-manage whatever symptoms they're having. I might order an x-ray or um, refer them to a specialist. I might give them a prescription. And just as you experienced with your son, um, I'm not permitted to charge my patient right. um, for that. Now you know there are always caveats to circumstances under which uh, I could. But e- effectively, the way that we work in the Canadian healthcare systems across the country is: um, as a physician, I see a patient, I provide a medically necessary service, and I bill the government for that service. Right. The government insurance plan. I don't bill the patient, and I don't. And this is very important. I don't, and I may not, bill both. So I can't okay. say, you know, the government is uh, the government insurance plan will pay me thirty dollars for this visit, but I really feel I'm worth fifty. So I'll just charge you the extra twenty. The extra, yeah. That's a user okay. fee or ex- okay. what we call extra billing, right? And it's not permitted anywhere in the country, and so, um, and that is what prevents you as a patient from experiencing a barrier to accessing a financial barrier to accessing the medically necessary services I provide.
0: Right, and and so. It's uh, you're you're not then getting an hourly wage. Just to sort of like dive into the nuts and bolts of that, you're being paid because you saw someone and and provided a specific. Service.
1: Yeah, sure. So this is very you know this is very interesting. In Canadian healthcare. One of the unique features of Canadian healthcare, or you know unusual features, I suppose, is that the money that's used to pay me as a physician is public money, comes right. from tax dollars runs through a public insurance plan, which is a not-for-profit public insurance plan. I live in Ontario, so it's called OHIP. And uh, that insurance plan pays me with public dollars, but I am not employed by the healthcare system. Okay. As a matter of fact, I'm not employed by anybody. I'm a self-employed entrepreneur. And that's the case with the vast majority of physicians in Canada, with a few exceptions. Um, And so uh, I'm not paid on salary. I don't have a Pension, I don't have benefits. Um, I'm paid on what's called fee for service. And so, you know, it's sort of a piecework um, type of of remuneration model. Now, that is shifting, you know, in in primary care. Many family doctors, like myself, are now moving away from traditional fee for service models to other kinds of uh, methods of remuneration. But the fundamental divide is this concept of public payment but private delivery. Right. I bill the government, but the the government doesn't employ me. Contrast that with, say, the NHS, the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. where physicians are employees of the NHS. right, Contracted for their services and, um, you know, I, if I worked in the NHS, I wouldn't just be paid for. By public dollars, I would also have a boss who would tell me you know what hours I work and right, right. Um, could fire me or hire me or you know right. any of those things i don't have any of that as a canadian physician i'm i'm self employed and that's an unusual combination that public payment, private delivery dichotomy.
0: I was just thinking of two things there. First of all, I was thinking about what your taxes must be like in terms of like complexity. I was really just (laughs) horrified. Um, But But, but,
1: you know, it's interesting because actually one of the beauties of Canadian healthcare that people don't think about very much mm -hmm. is the simplicity of the system. So actually, I mean, it's true that I'm self-employed, but I really only get one, I only have one source of income. That's fair. Yeah, 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 And, you know, so in my unit where I work, we're, I think, about 40 physicians now in my, you know, large academic family practice clinic. And we employ one and a half billing staff okay. to manage that. My colleagues in the US who work in a system where there are multiple payers, um, it's not unusual to have a billing staff to physician ratio of one to one. Wow. Because you've got, you know, your patient comes in and it's like, do you have Blue Cross, Green Cross, Red Cross, Green Shield? What does your insurance pay for this, not pay for it? Do we have to get pre-approval before we provide you with this service? Am I in your network? Am I out of your network? And then, you know, will you pay or we have to hire a collection agency to run after you to try to get the payment or argue with the insurance company about whether they should have or they pay 80% of it and you're going to pay the other 20%? Uh, You know, so actually in the U.S., Thirty cents of every dollar that's spent in healthcare is spent on that kind of administration. Wow! In Canada, in our public programs, it's more like two cents, and so it's an incredibly simple. It's one of the the uh, features of the Canadian system is its administrative elegance because you got a single place. I, I send one bill yep. to one insurance company once a month. Happens to be a public insurance company, and you know who pays on time? They do, right? <laughs> Um, I
0: was also thinking of does that keep the government at arm's length from treatment because you're not, because you're not employed by them. Um, What's uh, how does that change the, those kinds of pressures?
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I think there are as, as with all things, you know, there are good and bad aspects to that. So you're hundred percent right. One of the reasons why physicians in uh, historically, in the '60s, in Tommy Douglas's Saskatchewan, fought to maintain that independent contractor status is because they wanted that autonomy that you're speaking of. Right. They wanted not to have the government be the boss of them. They wanted to be able to make their clinical decisions and not have some, you know, government bureaucrat tell them what they could and couldn't do for their right. patient. And that's admirable. On the other hand, um, it makes it difficult to really have a system when your doctors are outside of it in that way. It's true. Right? Yeah. So I work in a hospital. The nurses are employed by the hospital. The physiotherapists are employed by the hospital. The social workers are employed by the hospital. The medical secretaries are employed by the hospital. If we make a decision as an organization that we're going to ramp up this program or you know, uh, start a new clinic or try virtual care delivery or open our, you know, our hours later or for our clinics or whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, we do what you would do in any other organization. You, you make that decision and then you pay your employees to do that work, Right. but the physicians aren't employed. The physicians aren't employed by the hospital and the physicians are outside of that. And so it's, um... It's easy to end up in a situation where the doctors are kind of outside of where the action is in healthcare reform and health system improvement. And um, that's been one of the very tricky and difficult things Mm -hmm. in Canadian healthcare is how do you engage the docs to participate actively in that reform and make them feel part of it Mm -hmm. when they're the only ones who are kind of outside the system in a way. Right,
0: right. That's fascinating. I had never, well, I mean, I hadn't thought of a lot of this stuff. Yeah, yeah why <laughs> but, would you, yeah, right? Right, because it just, I, uh, you know, as a person who was born in the middle of the 1970s, it's been my, the conscious parts of my life, this has all been here for me. Yeah,
1: yeah. which is amazing. And, you know, I, I worry, I, I worry that, I mean, I've never practiced in a healthcare system where I, I couldn't just treat my patients without worrying about
0: Right, whether or not your 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 boss had a, a, a different thought on this or what the costs were going to be of a course of treatment Any of it. or you yeah. know, I
1: worry about doing what's best for my patients. And there are many irritants and lots of ways that you know <laughs> that the system falls short you know on a day-to-day basis. But that's a worry that I don't have as a physician, and that's a worry that I don't have as a patient. But our parents or grandparents knew exactly what those worries were like. Right. And sometimes I wonder how many generations will take it. F- how many generations of taking it for granted does it take before you get blasé about that, right? Or you, or you cease to understand, cease to value it, the importance of yeah. it, yeah. yeah. Um, and and um, at what point does the willingness to to fight for that, for the preservation of it, um, become blunted? Because you've lost that that memory of right. what it was like before. Luckily, you know we have the U.S. to remind us. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's, a, that's a you know it's an advantage to have yeah. them so close. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I actually I wanted to ask about some comparisons, but before we get into that, uh, you had said something about about who about who's covered and and who isn't, and also I, I want to ask about what's covered and what isn't.
1: Yeah. So the two great questions. I mean, who's covered? The short answer is. Almost everybody, but mm. there are important exceptions so if you 're a Canadian citizen you 're covered um, in, a, in your provincial insurance plan, and if you move from one province to another, you, know, you your insurance is supposed to be portable, although sometimes there are disputes okay. um, if you 're a, a permanent resident, you know what we used to call a landed immigrant, if you 're mm-hmm. a refugee or a refugee claimant you 're covered um, and so uh, that covers you know most people are covered right uh, there are some people who are not um, people who come in under temporary foreign worker programs right okay so you know the folks who are picking tomatoes uh, in Leamington Ontario just down the down the highway from us uh, here or uh, people who are here with um, different kinds of immigration status and notably who who don't have um, uh, official immigration status so people who are here with expired, visas or, you know, kind of flying under the radar when it comes to their citizenship and immigration status are not covered. Okay. Um, and citizens who've been out of the country for uh, prescribed periods of time, and it sort of varies depending on um, which province you're in. But, you know, if you If you were to take a job and, you know, if you went to be the Canadian ambassador to France. Right. Okay. (laughs) And lived in Paris, you know, and then came back, you would have to, it would take you a while to get your insurance reactivated. So it's it's usually around kind of immigration status.
0: Okay. Is there any in between or is it just yes covered or no not covered?
1: There is no in between. It's either yes covered or, and again, that's, it's the beauty of the simplicity of these rules. If you're in, you're in. Mm -hmm. And everything that's covered is covered for you.
0: Okay. And so then, speaking of that, what what is covered and what's... Or I, I would say, I think the better question is, what's not covered?
1: You know, this is one of the interesting debates about Canadian healthcare is, have we got this right? And I would say the answer is no, we don't have it right. Um, the good news is that anything that's provided in a hospital or by a doctor, if it's deemed to be medically necessary, is covered. That was the vast majority of healthcare in the 1960s when these right. plans were, were developed. It's not, it, you know, increasingly it leaves out a lot of important stuff. Uh, the most most obvious examples are pharma. So, right. you know, you're t- let's take your son's example. You know, you could... Uh, take your son to the emergency department and he could have an x-ray and he could get a cast and he could be seen by an orthopedic surgeon and he could have an operation if he needed one and he could stay for two weeks in the hospital or, you know, God forbid, even in the intensive care unit, you could go home without a bill, but with a prescription in your hand for a anti-inflammatory and you'd be on your own with that prescription. Uh, So, uh, given the critical importance, and hopefully we'll have the chance to talk about pharmacare, given the critical importance of prescription medicines in managing uh, medical illness in the the 21st century, that's just crazy. Mm -hmm. It makes no logical sense. Nobody would ever design a healthcare system in the 21st century that included doctors and hospitals, but not prescription medicines. And we know that that has a real impact on a lot of... Canadians. I see it in my practice. Uh, it doesn't include dentistry. So again, if you've got private coverage through your employer, that's great for you. But if you don't, you know, uh, uh, there are horror stories. I I got an email from a Canadian who I, I'd never met, but who'd heard me talking on the radio about something who said, uh, you know, I... I'm just reaching out because I, I had such an amazing experience in the Canadian healthcare system. I had cancer and I was successfully treated and um, everything was covered and I didn't have to worry. And that was really important for me because I'm a construction worker and my work's kind of seasonal and I don't have right. a lot of savings. Yeah, yeah. And But uh, the chemotherapy did a number on my teeth and uh, I can't really chew. And so I've been eating pureed foods for months. Do you know of a dentist who would be willing to see me on some kind of a payment plan? I mean, I just, it made me want to cry. Yeah. Do you know someone who'd be willing to see me, you know, and for 50 bucks a month, I swear I'd pay him off, but it would take me a while kind of a thing. Yeah. And so dentistry, not included, right. as if the mouth isn't part of the body. right? <laughs> um, mental health services, very importantly, mental health services in the community that are uh, provided by non-physicians, so social workers, psychologists, et cetera, not covered. And so you end up with this strange situation where um, we covered doctors and hospitals. That was really important and really good. right? But in doing that, we forced ourselves to create a system that's centered on doctors and hospitals because that's what we cover. And so it becomes self-fulfilling. How are you going to move care into the community and to less expensive and arguably much more qualified providers if those folks' services aren't covered by the public plans? And then you get this uh, proliferation of private insurance to try to Fill those gaps. And that works for those people that have the private insurance, but it really doesn't work for those people who don't.
0: Right. Um, and is it a case of that the nature of healthcare has changed since we built these systems, or was it just that it was built with this one lens and everything has been built on top of that original design? Yes. Both okay. those things, okay. <laughs>
1: you know. So, if you look back and at uh, the Emmett Hall Commission, which was the royal commission that led to the establishment of Canadian Medicare way back then, it was recommended that pharmaceuticals be included. Okay. And so, you know, when it comes to pharmacare, every single royal commission, every single uh, hard look that we've ever taken at our Canadian healthcare systems, um, we've come back with the same recommendation, which is that prescription drugs should be included in Medicare. It makes no sense. And we've known that since the 50s. But is it is it the case that prescription medicines play the same role then that they do now? Of course not. You know, right, we have because so much We have a massive explosion yeah. in, uh, in technology uh, and the number of things that we can now manage Medically, meaning with prescription medicines that used to require surgery, right? The number of conditions that used to kill people that are now chronic conditions. Think about HIV/AIDS. Think about cancer. Think about you know diabetes. I mean, these are these at one time in our not so distant history, uh, these diagnoses for many people meant a death sentence. Today, we manage them and their chronic illnesses, but we manage them with prescription medications.
0: Right. And so that really brings us to the question of of how do things move forwards and I, I do want to talk a little bit about what does this look like for other countries like are there countries that that do cover pharmacare are we are we the the outlier in that um, yeah
1: like we 're the outlier. Canada is the only industrialized country in the world that has universal Healthcare that doesn't include prescription drugs. Okay. We are so far the outlier on this issue. It should be a source of national shame.
0: Is there um, is there a, a country whose model we aspire to, or is there someone that we look to when we're trying to make changes?
1: You know, I think it depends on the issue. I would love to see a system in Canada that had the forward thinkingness of integration of health and social services that we see in the Scandinavian countries. The universal coverage um, that we see in the UK in the NHS with no, you know, fees at the point of care, um, the the commitment around uh, technology that we see in other parts of Western Europe and in some instances in Australia – the the low drug costs that we see in uh, in New Zealand and also in Australia. So, you, you know, you, it would be it's like a car. Wouldn't you love to build it? You know, with the muffler from one place <laughs> and the engine from somewhere else and the really sleek uh, body from some other place. And and um, one of the, the country that I love telling the story of is actually Taiwan, which had an opportunity to do exactly that. So Taiwan industrialized very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And they had basically no healthcare system to speak of, and so they had the opportunity to do this, uh, starting from scratch, to build a brand new healthcare system for their uh, for their people. So, so you know, the, one of these Asian tiger economies, massive uh, growth in GDP, very very quickly, and they ended up building a system that um, looks a lot like the Canadian system in that it's you know, in their case, a national universal first dollar coverage public insurance plan. But it covers everything. It covers not just doctors and hospitals, but also prescription drugs and traditional Chinese medicine and physiotherapy and you name it. And um, everybody's got a smart card. And no matter where you go in the system, they just plug your card into a machine and up comes all your information and the healthcare provider seeing you can see everything that's you know gone on, and you can see everything that's gone on. Um, the prices are much lower than the prices that we pay here, et cetera, et cetera. And it was an interesting example of this. You think about that thought experiment: if we were starting from nothing, right, what would we build? Right, we wouldn't build what we've got now. But it's so much easier to start from nothing. Of course. Because, you know, that's, because you know, that's, that's what makes policy change so difficult. Right. Because right?
0: we have this gigantic nationwide system that functions. And so anything we do, we can't, we can't break the system. Right. You have to rebuild the plane while it's flying. Right. Oh, that's scary. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today.
1: Thank you. This has been great.
0: If people want to learn more, where can they turn to?
1: Well, I, I would be a horrible author if I didn't point that to my very <laughs> own book, wouldn't I? Um, I did write a book on this subject. Uh, it's called Better Now, Six Big Ideas to Improve Healthcare for All Canadians. And it does uh, start with a kind of healthcare 101 section. I should have called it, explain it to me like I'm five. Yeah. But uh, uh, I, I, instead, I called it 101. And it, it kind of it starts from the basics, just how the system is structured and whatnot. But the the thing about the book and I think that this is so important when we talk about healthcare, is that it's based on the stories of real people, patients mostly in my practice, who've experienced challenges in the Canadian healthcare system. And I use those stories as well as the story of my own family as a departure point for a conversation about how we can do better. I think that it's so important that we not lose sight of the human beings that are affected by the policy decisions we make in healthcare in Canada and elsewhere. And so we can begin from the stories of people uh, like Ahmed in the book, who's a cab driver in Toronto who can't afford to fill his prescriptions, or Susan, who's a elderly woman in Saskatchewan who keeps getting admitted and readmitted and re-readmitted to the hospital with her chronic diseases. Um, and so, you know, these are, these are departure points for... A conversation about what really matters. Right. Um, So, anyway, I feel like it's not a bad place to start.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks
1: for having me.
2: Hey everyone, Amira here from Canada 2020. I have some great news. I wanted to let you all know that we've got a very special guest who will be joining us in our studio for a free and public event on January 30th, organized by Canada 2020 and the Ryerson Leadership Lab. Sarada Perry will be giving a talk on political communication to respond to the populist moment, where we'll have a deeper conversation on how words can still unite in an era of division. Serata is the former senior speechwriter to President Barack Obama during his second term, currently a communications strategist and a visiting global fellow with the Ryerson Leadership Lab. We're really looking forward to having Serata here on the 30th. Unfortunately, we've sold out all of our tickets, but there is a wait list, and we're working on opening up another batch of seats. So if you're interested, feel free to check out our website and put your name on the waiting list for a chance to attend. maintains one of the world's largest debit networks by supporting 28 million active debit cards in Canada. Thanks to their secure technology and zero liability policy, Canadians can make everyday purchases with peace of mind. Learn more at interact.ca slash fraud prevention.